so things do not always go as you plan them. That's the big life lesson for today's episode. But let me back up. I'm Tim Brunel, the oldest sire of Philip Brunel, the so-named Renaissance Man, and this has been an ongoing podcast journey of ours, posting new episodes as we see fit. Well, today's episode is quite a hallmark because it features an interview with a lifelong hero of mine, the drummer and composer Stuart Copeland. You see, Stuart is in town, in Minneapolis, for the Midwest premiere of his latest oratorio, Satan's Fall, which you'll hear a lot about. Philip and Vocal Essence were party to commissioning the piece a few years back, and we figured if Stuart was going to be in town for rehearsals and the premiere, well, let's pencil in a few other activities, like this podcast. However, you won't hear me in this interview because I tested positive for COVID a few days ago. Well, the show must go on, so thanks to my erstwhile younger brother Chris, who you will hear, and the engineer Cody Bordeaux, we assembled Stuart and Philip to talk about commissioning composers, writing for choirs, and the evolution of Satan's Fall. So here's episode 18 of Renaissance Man, featuring Stuart Copeland. Hello. You're listening to Renaissance Man, a podcast featuring my father, Philip Brunel, as he talks about the world of music. Philip, also known as Dad, uh, I expect that you are deeply familiar uh, since your youth uh, with the music of the police in, uh, in particular. And I'm wondering if there's any connection there between um, uh, your son Tim's uh, familiarity and posters of the police uh, back uh, in his room in the 70s uh, and the commission that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, none. None whatsoever? There, there is none. No, you see, uh, as folks who know me know, you know, the whole world of popular music, I was sitting in the uh, practice room with my piano, working on my Tierney exercises and all of the other composers. So I, I, this, was, this was another world, which I only learned about much more recently, and then started saying, oh, okay, so now I know more about the music of the police and other groups of the 70s, 80s, etc., than I ever did back when I was a young kid starting my practicing and getting going. And Stuart, also known as... By the way, if I might interject, Philip, <laughs> with respect, just because you know about the police doesn't make you hip to the minute. Because <laughs> the police was 40 years ago. But you're, you're catching up. Thank yes. you. I'm yeah. doing my best. And, and Stuart, when was the first point that you became aware of Philip Brunel? Uh, in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. which was the premiere, the world premiere of uh, Satan's Fall, and uh, Philip came over there to check it out. I think you were already committed we were uh, to the one of the commissioners, one yes. of the commissioners, um, a consortium of commissioners banded together to commission this piece. And uh, Philip showed up in Pittsburgh, I guess, to see what he had bought. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew we were going to do it. And you see, I think one of the great things about the commission. Uh, and the thing that Matt Mahaffey, who arranged for this to get put together, I loved the idea 
that we have a number of organizations doing it. Because when you commission a piece, if you're the only commissioner, okay, it gets a performance, and then what? But this way, he automatically knows that he's going to get, let's say there's five of us in on, there's going to be five performances. And that's great for a composer rather than knowing you're going to get one, and then you hope other people will pick it up. I think this is a very positive way of, of commissions operating. Well, it's quite difficult to get that second performance of an opera. Getting the commission, everyone wants to be the premiere. Exactly. Uh, their sponsors, uh, everybody loves a, a premiere. Yeah. Uh, great kudos. Mm -hmm. uh, a revival, not quite the same. The, the champagne isn't quite as fizzy. <clears throat> But I think what worked in this particular one is that the five commissioning groups are all in different parts of the country. So I could say, truthfully, that we are doing the Midwest premiere, and that's fine, you know? Absolutely. And how did the, the topic of Milton's Paradise Lost come to the fore? How did you um, come to that as the, as the topic for the commission, uh, as well as, as the title, Satan's Fall? Well, there are many, uh, <clears throat> many paths to Paradise Lost, uh, but one overriding thing is it's public domain. <laughs> it's free. I haven't got to deal with the estate of an author or, even worse, an author. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, I've done the work of Edgar Allan Poe uh, and now Milton, and the original underlying literary material is free for me to plunder and um, take liberties. And although I feel naturally very respectful um, of those two great writers, but I can do with it without having to deal with an estate or anybody, and uh, it's much more malleable. That's the breadhead side of it. That's the businessman. But really, uh, Milton and Paradise Lost was rammed down my throat as a teenager in high school, like many of your listeners, and uh, it kind of stuck, even though I couldn't understand any of it, just the power of it, the majesty of it, the color, the imagery uh, really stuck. And when I was commissioned originally by the Melbourne Conservatory of Music uh, to write something, I thought of that as having, you know, celestial for a choir, that's got a, that was a dead cert. Of course, that commission went away when the guy who commissioned it got fired, um, and it went back on the shelf. But choir needs to be big, and a little story about a person starving in a garret wouldn't really do. It's got to be about the cosmos, and Paradise Lost delivers for Satan's Fall. And uh, when I heard the piece there, the first thing I knew is I've got to read Paradise Lost. Hmm. I mean, I had the big, thick book, but I had not read it. And so I did read all of Paradise Lost. And I was glad to know that Stuart was not setting the entire book. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> it would be 
I mean, he's, you know, there's a number of, what is there, 10 parts to There's 12 chapters of which I have used two. Right. Chapters five and six. 10,000 lines of blank verse. Now, what is blank verse, you might ask? It's verse that has neither rhythm nor rhyme. It's blank. But it is not blank at all. It is supercharged. And there is rhythm. Uh, Milton was not so concerned with rhyme, but it certainly has rhythm. And... Uh, I had to redact it somewhat and reduce, just these two books were 15,000 words, and I reduced those 15,000 words to about 3,000 words, um, mainly by one simple device of removing the similes. The, <clears throat> it's, it's laden with similes. He raised like the rising of Euripides and, the, and then a whole bunch of Greek reference. His sword like the sword of yada, yada, yada descending like the falling tides of whatever, whatever, whatever. So you take out all the similes, and you got, he raised his sword and it fell and crushed his skull. Uh, works really great like that. Um, but his, his adjectives, I learned all kinds of new words. You know, when, when Satan gets, he, he gets uh, clobbered by St. Michael, his, the angel Michael, his sword goes right, pierced right through him and writhed him to and fro, convolved. Convolved, what a great word! Mm -hmm. And the Milton is full. Once you once you work your way past the similes, the language that's still there is very powerful. By the way, you mentioned you were glad that I had only approached two of the books. The idea hit me yesterday, and since you've read the whole darn thing recently, you can help me out here. How about? Acts 1 and Act 3 to turn this whole into a whole evening. At the moment, it's a 40-minute piece, and the, it's right. accompanied on the night with other yeah. oratorio pieces. But I'm just thinking maybe I ought to go check out the first part and the last part and make a whole evening of the whole darn thing. How about that? I, you heard it here first, folks. I like that. I like that. In fact, what I'll need to do is go back and look at books 1 and 3 now. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Me too. Yes. So what's what's in there? Well, there's the whole story of Paradise Lost is right. about Adam and Eve right. and how they lost Paradise, otherwise known as Eden, and why? How? Where did they screw up? And so I'd like to. How do they fill those other other ten books? Uh, the, the the two books that I've used are about Satan, and it's a story within a story about what's his Satan's problem? What's up with Satan? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, explains how the almighty creator of everything has an adversary. How's that possible? Um, but the other parts are about Adam and Eve, and they don't appear in books five and six, so they're not in Satan's fault at all. Mm -hmm. They don't make an appearance. So that's a whole nother soprano. Mm -hmm. You know that Penderecki did a big opera on Paradise Lost. Oh, no. Okay, next yeah. idea. Okay, no, 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 let's no. do well, Finnegan's Wake. But it's... it's, it's Huge in a in a kind of meandering sense. So, mm. stay with your idea. I would try not to meander. No, no, you you're not a meanderer. No, writing. Let's cut all. to the chase, as yes. I learned in Hollywood. Absolutely. So you've spoken of of the ways in which you've you've dealt with the um, lengthy and and marvelously uh, 
colorful text of Milton. Um, one of the things that Milton's trying to do is justify the ways of God to man. And yeah, partly, fail, uh, and, fail. <laughs> and, and the verdict, at least for some, is still out uh, on that point. Um, part of it then is story, and part of it is, is explanation. Um, have those two elements then, are they both combined in the work, or do you, are you cutting to the chase and, and giving us the story? Well, the explanation part, the story is cool. Uh, in these two books, the story is three days of battle, and each day has a different arc to it. Um, the rising and falling fortunes of the angels versus the devils. Um, but the explanation part is not complete. An atheist would look at it and say that, well, Satan has all kinds of sensible arguments. He argues, the complex arguments, and he makes a point. He has all the best lines. In fact, some people thought that Milton, Blake, who was the great artist who illustrated a lot of Paradise Lost, he said once of Milton that he is in the party of Satan without knowing it. But um, that's for atheists, for people of faith. They look at the serpentine logic presented by Satan. Of course it's sexier. Of course it's more handsome. Of course, it's more colorful and beguiling. That's what Satan does. God speaks monosyllabically. He speaks very simple. Right is right. Up is up. Down is down. Any complication, any slithering around and justification, any nuance, these are of Satan. So it seems to the person of non-faith that, well, Satan wins this argument. To a person of faith, it isn't an argument, really. It's just a statement of right and wrong. Requires no elaboration, no decoration, nothing. Because I said so is pretty much the basis of the argument. Later on, of course, there is the conversation between Adam and one of the angels, if, if we're looking for um, more divine um, sexiness. He does ask, so do angels have a sex life? And the answer is... I got to check out those other books. There, there's all sorts of material there for, wow. for, the, for the next installment. I chose the wrong book. That, sex? Uh, that there's, there's, there's <laughs> I so missed much the material. sex? There's other adjectives there as well. So, uh, yeah, you might take a look at that. Dang. How, and, and I'm wondering if you can talk, in addition to the um, treatment of the text, how does that then work into the orchestration and the choice of um, instruments, uh, of rhythms, of, of tessituras um, in creating the, the musical experience? Well, I've always conceived of this piece happening in a church um, because it's churchy. Mm -hmm. um, and so for churches, you've got to be very careful sonically because there's so much reverberation, and it's a beautiful thing. And if you work with it, it's a beautiful thing. If you work against it like any drums, uh, it's not a pleasant sound. And so I had to be very spare with the orchestra. The orchestra is quite small, but its purpose, its function, is to provide scaffolding, to provide a launching platform for the mighty choir to leap out front and dominate the airwaves, to, to just fill the majestic building with sound. And the orchestra is basically a stand for them to, you know, a, a, a structure for them to stand on to deliver. And, and Philip, what's your, what's your sense then, since you get to be on the podium and conducting, what's your sense of the ways in which the writing for the orchestra and for the choir um, bring the piece alive? Well, what he has, of course, is created two different feelings. One is sort of what I call the God feeling, and one is definitely the Satan feeling. So that, and I think 
if you didn't know anything, but you just were listening to it, you would you'd hear quite a difference, and you go, oh, it's changed there. And then you are told, oh, by the way, that's Satan now. Now we're into his into his style of music. Uh, but the, what he's done with the orchestration is in the big—I mean, these are—we got three big battles here. And to make that work, um, you first of all, the most important thing in any piece of music is rhythm. That's it. It starts with rhythm. I mean, every piece of music that I work with a choir on, every time, I always say, you know, <clears throat> you've got just three things to deal with. You've got rhythm, notes, and uh, words, and you learn them in that order. Rhythm is first. So the early rehearsals that we did of Stewart's piece were even just doing ta-ta-ta-ta, just, you know, okay, here, folks, one, two, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, or whatever it was. We did that, got that down. I said, okay, now let's add the notes to that. And still, just, we often did it just on ta, just to get that settled in. And then, great, it's real nice to have words, so let's add those, you know, to go for it. But in the church to do this, you also have to um, be careful with your articulation. So you can't necessarily say, you know, something like, um, St. Michael had a sword. You have to go, St. Michael had a sword. You have to make sure that you're articulating all of that without losing the line. And you can do that. So that's really the way I approach a piece of music like this. That's great. Thanks. And, and, and Stuart, um, presumably, uh, but I, please correct me if this is not the case, uh, this is the largest work that you've written with such a prominent um, use of choir uh, in that way. How did, um, how did that come out of the, the rest of your career so far? And where did you, how did you develop your uh, sense of, of how to write for a choir? Well, it arose from opera. Of, of which I've written seven by now. And they all have choirs, but not as elaborate and probably not as proficient as a real choir that is a choir, and that's what they do. And so I've never been very adventurous. Uh, I use them as kind of a Greek chorus, kind of a just sort of a, as, as an accent, as a color. But this, the purpose is to make those singers shine and to really use the instrument of a choir to do all it can do, all of its full choirness. Um, and so that meant a lot more attention into it and a development. I, I mean, I've used choir, um, but never as the focal point. And to have them as the focal point, and there is a soprano and a tenor, and there are soloists as well, but they serve the choir kind of rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And people who sing in choirs will be pleased to hear of their prominence, uh, since usually it, uh, people think of it as the other way around. Well, there's another thing about choir. Uh, it's not quite the same as backing singers. I'm working with uh, singers with the show that I'm doing where I've, I've orchestrated police songs and I'm playing with orchestras across the land. And I have three singers, and they're expensive L.A. session singers, but I have to take the session out of them and say, no, 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 you're not backing anybody. You're the thing. Let's hear you, Carmel. Let's hear you, Ashley. Let's hear you, Amy, not supporting someone else, but you are the thing. And it took a while for them to kind of come out of their professional shell, because they get the work, because they don't step on the star. Okay, ladies, you are now the star. And so in this case, 
it wasn't the choir because they're they're always the star. It was me, the composer, who had to think in terms differently from using the choir as a piece of some other thing. Using the choir as the thing required the composer in this case to think like not a session singer. Sure. So it's, it's so it's really quite a different way of of thinking about the relationship of the choir uh, and, and the rest of the piece. Choir's boss. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a good motto for for all choirs, uh, um, for sure. Um, and and I'm wondering then if how that plays into uh, Philip into your history of commissioning so many pieces, many of which of course have have featured um, the choir. Um, how does this one, um, in terms of the commissioning process? Feel different? Well, in this case, it was a fact that Matt Mahaffey came to me and said, I've got this project. Would you like to become a member of the commissioning team? And because Matt and I had worked previously on another commission, uh, I we, we just trust each other. And so when he said he had this idea of doing a piece with Stuart Copeland, I went, let's go for it. I'm ready to be part of it. And so you know, the rest of it is history. And and history will continue to be made uh, later this weekend with the actual concert itself and, right. the, and the performance. Um, maybe we could finish up. I'd love to hear what you are most looking forward to uh, in the concert uh, when it takes place. Well, let me just start by saying when I asked him about a space to perform this, he said, well, I really, at the end especially, I do need a big pipe organ. Well, that automatically meant it was going to be in a church. Um, and, I mean, we have some wonderful concert halls here, but they just have electric organs. They don't have the real thing. And I said, ah, Central Lutheran. So I sent him a picture of Central Lutheran. He went, that's it. There you are. It's a magnificent space. And so that just... That number one just determined, okay, we will do it. And then with Peter Rothstein from Theater La Teda, I said, Peter, help me figure out how do I place the characters so that it, because in Pittsburgh they had a small theater where everybody was kind of crammed on the stage, so it meant that God and Satan were kind of like next to each other shaking hands, and I didn't want that. I wanted a real feeling of, of personalities coming at it in various ways, which is what I can do at Central. So that will all come forth um, just in the way uh, the, play, the, the players, the singers, are all programmed to, uh, to appear. Great. And Stuart? Well, for me, it is a form of world premiere. It's the first time I get to hear the piece with a big bad organ, the real church organ, the angry organ, the you have sinned organ, the almighty celestial God creator of the universe organ. Uh, up till now, I've had an electric organ with other performances, and my composing it, I have all kinds of samples of big bad orchestra, big bad or organ, but to hear it in the church, in situ, where the instrument is tweaked for that room and for that moment. It's, it's the God moment when God lays it down and says, okay, here, everybody, here's what's up. He needs to have the big organ with the giant 20-foot pipes uh, to give gravitas to that. He, you know, God's worked hard. He deserves it. So, so the he deserves the right organ. <laughs> That's right. So the choir is boss, but actually the organist is the boss of bosses. 
Well, for that scene, yes. for that scene. Uh, and I guess uh, this is humanity versus the system. Uh, I, I, it's just sort of like Rage Against the Machine. Well, thank you so much, both. And I think that we've achieved what we need to achieve. Thank Thanks. you. Cool. Great. Great. Super, uh. super.